Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 1.1, Water and Darkness. Now, you may be wondering why we're beginning our journey through the Old Testament with this theme of chaos. What a place to start. Why so negative, man? Why not start with creation, a more positive theme to get us into the Old Testament? Well, look, the first and main reason is simply because, as we'll see, the Bible itself starts with chaos. The first words of the Bible are not, let there be light. So what do you think of when I say chaos? I wonder what comes to mind for you. Perhaps a a teenager's bedroom, (laughs) a battlefield, uh, a car crash, maybe someone you know trying to cook dinner, or some seriously bad weather, cyclone, a flood, or something like that. All of those would fit the dictionary definition of chaos, which is complete disorder and confusion. Now, when people are trying to get their heads around the Bible in terms of its big picture and major themes, they'll often identify the ideas that run right through and then gather that information under a heading that ends with ology. Ology basically means study of. So, you know, even if you've never studied the Bible before, you'll have heard of some ologies, I'm sure. Musicology, zoology, biology, and so on. So theologians have given names to many of these biblical themes so that we have things like Christology, study of Christ, pneumatology, the study of the spirit, ecclesiology, the study of the church, eschatology, study of end times, and so on. But there's another approach that you can take to the biblical themes, and that is to simply use categories that we already find in the Bible. They're less familiar, perhaps, but they're just as meaningful, if not more meaningful, if we take the time to look at them. So, for example, the theme of chaos, it runs actually right throughout the Bible, and it's a theme that's represented by a couple of key images. And those images, as you may have guessed from the title of this podcast, are darkness and waters. So first of all, darkness. In the depths of his despair, Job says these words, Are not the days of my life few? Leave me alone that I might find a little comfort before I go never to return to the land of gloom and deep darkness, the land of gloom and chaos where light is like darkness. And so you see, you get this image of chaos, this this powerful force that undoes life. Um, And Job is lamenting that he is returning to that place. You also get this other image of the waters right through the the Bible. And we'll look at some other verses that that occurs in. But throughout the Psalms, for instance, especially the Lament Psalms, a common theme is being overwhelmed or feeling overwhelmed by water. So Psalm 124, for instance, it says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when our enemies attacked us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. And if you think about it, there are a whole bunch of other texts and stories in the Bible that use these two symbols, sometimes poetic texts, but sometimes narratives as well. Think of uh, the flood in Genesis 6 to 9, a flood that undoes Genesis because Genesis 1, sorry, because the waters that are divided in Genesis 1 come crashing back together uh, from above and below with the flood story. The second last plague in Egypt before the death of the firstborn in Exodus 10 
It's darkness. It's this darkness so thick that you can feel it. it uses the same word that we get in Genesis 1. We get psalms of lament, as I mentioned, speaking of floods, like the one in Psalm 124 that just overwhelm us and drag us down. We get Jonah in the storm in Jonah 1, sinking to the bottom of the sea in chapter 2. In John 1, Jesus comes as a light in the darkness to the chaos. And the disciples again on a boat in the storm with Jesus in Mark 4, where it says the waves beat into the boat and the boat was being swamped. Then you get darkness falling when Jesus dies on the cross. And you can probably think of lots of others as well. There's plenty of texts throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that use these two symbols, these forces of chaos that persist right throughout the biblical story and on into our lives. They're forces that threaten to diminish our lives, to make our lives less. So with all that in mind, let's turn to the beginning of the Bible, very first verses, and see how the Old Testament begins. So Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the first sentence in the Bible, and I'm reading from the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version here. It says, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, hang on a minute. If God created everything, which Christians believe he did, then why are we hearing about darkness over the deep or the face of the waters before we even get to verse 3 where God begins to create? There's something fishy going on here? Well, it's not that fishy. But when we get to, verse, uh, to part 2 on creation, part two of this podcast series, we'll see that we sometimes look for the wrong kinds of details when we're reading the Bible. So let's come back to this verse. What's interesting here in all of chapter one, actually, Genesis one, is that in the six days of creation, God is never said to have created the darkness or the waters. Now, what might be the significance of that? Well, this is our first hint that we're not reading a scientific account of how the world came into existence. That's really important. When we think of how the world came into being, we think of what? Empty space, right? And I mean outer space, where planets and stars will eventually form. But the image that we get here in verses 1 and 2, it's, it's very different from that. It's a, a great big dark abyss, like the depths of a massive undiscovered ocean. And on the surface of that huge expanse of water is God's breath, God's spirit stirring the waters, or a wind blowing across the surface. The Hebrew word uh, ruach, which is used there, can mean breath, spirit, or wind. And so all of these images are present. And just out of interest, actually, the Greek word pneuma has those same three meanings. But the image painted by Genesis 1 and verses 1 and 2, it's not very scientific. But you know what? That's absolutely fine, because science was not a concern of the authors of Genesis. It wasn't even on their radar, the sort of questions that we ask. This image is theological. And what I mean by that is that these opening lines are trying to say something about God and about the world and even about us, but they're not trying to say anything about the origins of the world in some scientific way. So just as the Bible begins with darkness and water, you might be interested to know that it actually ends with those same two forces or images or symbols being done away with. 
If you flick right to the back of your Bible, you'll see that in Revelation 21 verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, that used to distress me a bit as a kid because I, I love the beach, as most Aussies do. And I thought, what's this talk of a new creation with no sea? But when you understand that it's a symbol for chaos, it's the chaos that will be no more. It's not the ocean. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 22 says something similar. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Again, Revelation 22 verse 5 says, And there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So why does the Bible conclude by doing away with the sea and night with waters and darkness. Well, quite simply, because throughout the entire Bible, these have represented the life-threatening forces of chaos. They're forces that are antagonistic to God's good purposes for his creation. So just remember that those texts in Revelation, they're symbolic. They're not literal. We're getting ourselves into all kinds of real trouble and kind of embarrassing trouble when we insist that poetic symbolic texts need to be read scientifically or historically. But I'll have a lot more to say about that later on. The point is, you don't need to worry. The new earth, or perhaps more accurately, the renewed earth, will have beaches and it will have sun, two things that we Aussies love. And there's more to say on that, of course, but I'm gonna try and stay on track here. So we'll see more examples of Old Testament texts that talk about chaos as we go. But just note, uh, well, especially in the prophets, actually, they speak again and again of darkness when they warn Israel of coming judgment. And the psalmists, you know, they often use that image of drowning in deep waters. But throughout the Bible runs this tension, two realities. There's that which gives life and there's that which diminishes it. When life is given, where human beings flourish and achieve their potential, the Bible calls this blessing where life is taken away, where human dignity is diminished, we see what the Old Testament calls curses or chaos. Now in Genesis 1, the life-threatening forces of chaos are already present. Did you notice that? So right in the beginning, just as we begin reading the first verse, first two verses of the Bible, the life-threatening forces of chaos are already there. God didn't create the chaos. What he does is he puts it in place so that human life can still thrive. And that tells us something really interesting about the first chapter of the Bible. And that is, quite simply, that it probably wasn't the first text written. It's the first thing we read because it's at the beginning of the Bible, sure. But it declares something about God that Israel actually learned over centuries of time. And that is, namely, that God doesn't just make things, he fixes things. To put that into more theological language, God is not just our creator, but also our redeemer. To redeem something is, is to restore it, right? You know, we talk about redeeming yourself when you screw something up. So we might say, that presentation he did was awful, but he kind of redeemed himself at the end with that story. That's one meaning of redeem. Uh, 
But it doesn't just mean uh, compensating for faults. Redeem also means taking something that's ruined or useless beyond repair and restoring it with a sense of purpose. So I remember when our our daughters were young, my wife took a couple of my old t-shirts that I wasn't wearing anymore and she sort of ripped them up or cut them up and created dresses um, for the girls from my t-shirts. So there was a nice sense of continuity between something that I'd worn for years and something that they began to wear. And she took something that was now a bit useless and redeemed it. She gave it a new sort of purpose. So if you think of it this way, the creation account in Genesis 1, it was written after Israel had been saved out of Egypt. So it's no surprise, actually, that the language that's used when Israel does come out of Egypt later on in the book of Exodus, it sounds very similar to this language in Genesis 1. Israel comes out of a chaotic, life-threatening environment, don't they? They're led by a cloud and they're led by light. A great wind drives back the sea and dry land appears as the way forward to life. Does any of that sound familiar from Genesis 1? In Exodus 14, 21, it says this, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. Now, all that stuff is in Genesis 1. And without jumping ahead too much, the same language is used again later in Isaiah 40, when Isaiah talks about Israel returning from exile, which is another key moment in redemption history in the Old Testament. God acts again, and he always acts as both creator and redeemer. See, Israel discovered through centuries of making mistakes and crying out again and again to God for help, that God takes what is broken and he restores it. But for us, when we pick up our Bibles and we open to the first page, there it is, the fruit of all that history stated clearly on page one, a God who redeems. A God who takes these two primary symbols of chaos, these two life-threatening forces, and he puts them back in their place so that they can become part of a life-giving universe. So darkness remains. You'll notice God doesn't get rid of the darkness. It remains as night, but it alternates now with the, with the light. And I'm sure we're all grateful that we get day and night, time to snooze and recover for the next day. And the waters too, they remain, right? God doesn't get rid of them altogether, but they're given borders. They're given beaches or boundaries. Um, I like this verse actually in Job 38, where God tells Job of his creative acts. And he says, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, this far you shall come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stopped. You see, God takes the darkness and the waters and he redeems them. He gives them purpose so that it can serve a life-giving end. And this pattern is true of your life and mine, isn't it? If we just reflect for a moment on our lives, God takes our sin, our error, our mess, our mistakes, our life-diminishing decisions and tendencies, and he redeems them so that they can still be a blessing to others. I've messed up at times in my life in ways that God has redeemed in such a way that I become a more understanding person. And when I've tried to help someone else later on through a difficult time in their life, I find I have an inside understanding and I'm able to help them. 
So there are injustices that we suffer, sometimes even from members of our own families, that God uses to increase our capacity for love and understanding. And then, of course, there are also just mistakes that we've made that God uses to shape us, to form our character in ways that are ultimately for the best. And I should add, that doesn't happen automatically. Just making mistakes doesn't make you a better person. But we'll come back to that in part four of this series under the heading of crisis. Also, when you experience and receive forgiveness, when you offer someone else forgiveness, you are experiencing or um, participating, maybe even inhabiting the love of God in a profound way. And when you experience forgiveness, it makes it easier for you to offer forgiveness. So to recap, how does God rid the world of these chaotic forces? It's not, and, and I'm not just talking about some ancient, ancient biblical world, but also our world, your world, that you're living in today. How does God rid the world of chaotic forces? Well, in these two ways. First, God rids the world of chaos by redeeming what's broken, as we've just been talking about. And secondly, through order. Genesis 1 makes it very clear that the life-threatening powers of chaos are defeated by bringing order. And it's not just in Genesis 1. The value of order helps us actually to understand a huge part of the Old Testament. When God saves Israel from Egypt, what does he give them? He gives them the law, right? He gives them a whole way of ordering their lives. They come through the waters of the Red Sea, yeah, out of chaos, the life-diminishing slavery of Egypt. But from there, he leads them to Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments, and actually 613 laws. 613 rules! What is God doing? Well, we'll come to that as well. But through the law, God is providing Israel with the means to have life to the full. Because laws, they're boundaries, aren't they? They keep the good stuff in and the bad stuff out. And the law is not meant to make uh, life miserable for us or for Israel. It's given in order to keep chaos at bay. So the purpose of the law in the Old Testament, as we will see, is order. Because order is the opposite to chaos. Chaos diminishes life. Order is life-giving. But for now, as we finish up on this first podcast, I want you to just have a think on this question. Each time I'm going to give you a question to reflect on and think on before you listen to the second one or the next one. So the question is this, where in your life is there disorder and confusion? In other words, where do you experience chaos at work, in relationships, in your family? Is it in your decision making or your, your morals? Where in your life is there disorder and confusion. Catch you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.